Oil remains stubbornly high. No matter what they do, the Saudis increase supply, the strategic oil reserve, more and more is released during a time of war. Whatever they do, it seems that the oil price is stubbornly high. They cannot get it down. It is at $118 for West Texas Intermediate and Brent crude at 119 and they just cannot get it down. Bonds are now climbing above 3%. So interesting times as ever. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Back in the saddle here, back in Berlin, I was just in Spain. What an incredible country. I was at San Sebastian. I didn't even know what it was. My friend, a little out trip after COVID, he was stuck in Australia for two years. So he has family in Germany. So he's like, let's go on a little trip. I need to get out. I ended up at San Sebastian, which is like an anthropological experience. The sun worshippers at the famous beaches in Spain is something to behold. That is probably the coolest beach experience. Do not share. Normally, I'd say share this podcast. Do not share this podcast. This is precious information, my friends. But since you are a listener to the Northern Miner podcast, I share it with you. So big things happening here. Again, this oil price, I think, is they must just be at the end of their wits. Because as we learned in all our previous shows here, energy is kind of like the the commodity of all commodities, the top commodity, the one that determines everything, energy. You know, Jamie Dimon warning of economic hurricanes. And here we have the Fed rising. And it's kind of feels like there's a lot of job boning. There's a lot of talk and not very much action. We've got basically, what are we at? 0.75 Fed funds rate. And so my take on this, like I actually have a solution uh, from my perspective, dare the Northern Miner put out a solution for this. I actually have a solution for this. Rent is a major problem for inflation. Okay. That's a huge part of it. Housing, all this sort of thing. My solution, since you asked, is to tax second properties at 80%. If you want to get income on a property, you want to get income on a second property, I just think it should be taxed at 80%. I mean, there's not enough property for everybody. And meanwhile, I mean, my friend was in Australia who I was telling you about, they have tax incentives to buy second, third, fourth, fifth, and you know, properties. And then as we all know, once you have one property, it's just easy as pie to get that loan. And meanwhile, everybody else gets squeezed out who doesn't have a property. So I have a very simple solution for it. You tax it at 80%. I'm tempted to start a political career here on that one issue. And I think that'll take care of your inflation problem because all of a sudden you're going to have a ton of supply come on because all these people that want to retire off of income where people are just trying to get homes, I'm sorry, it's a practical solution to a very real problem. And here we see in the United States, you know, instead of actually proposing policy fixes, that might actually improve the situation. The government just kicks it all over to the Federal Reserve and the central bankers to fix, and it's all their fault, and it's all on them. And we've been seeing this for about 12 years now, maybe 14 since 2008, where it's just like, you know what? We can't deal with this. Let's just give it to the central bank. Anyways, let's not get off the topic of the show. Gold, you know, you know what's funny about gold? I mean, again, 
I'm full of ideas here. A gold just looks obvious to me right now at $1,852. It just looks obvious. Everything else kind of looks terrible and not financial advice. This may go down next week and go do terrible as everything crashes, but I just think it looks obvious, but that's just me. Um, a very exciting show today, a very interesting show. I mean, we had this interview, Alicia Hyatt, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, interviewed Premier Sandy Silver, the premier of Yukon. And, you know, I was quite surprised at actually what he had to say. I mean, you sort of think it's going to be a run-of-the-mill, we're doing everything we can to help the miners, and it's going to be great. And But... When Alicia asked about the budget and the government allocating $3.1 billion, apparently this is a lot of money to be allocating towards developing a critical mineral strategy or something to that effect. I don't actually, th- in, in our day and age, is $3.1 billion towards doing something so critically important a lot of money? I'm, I'm not sure it is. But nevertheless, I guess it's more than before. But when Alicia asked Premier Silver if there was anything more that he wanted out of the budget. And he just talks for two or three minutes on Arctic security. And here I was trying to do a non-geopolitical show, but it just shows how, you know, mining is, again, it's just like it's moved from the fringe, from the suburbs of the news narrative to downtown. It is like core It's kind of the news these days. Energy, resources have taken center stage. And you know what's interesting about that? They've always been center stage. It's just we lived in this, you know, world of the last 20 years where we thought that, you know, resources were endless and that supplies, resources, as controversial Paul from the Sirius Report said, Uh, You know, people think you just go to the gas station and that's where you get gas and that's where it comes from. And and I kind of agree. It's become abstracted. We've had it so comfortable here that we've forgotten just how critical, what role energy and these metals play. And I think we're in the process of relearning that lesson through, you know, $2, $3 gas at the gas station per liter. You know, I saw in Berlin, that's what it is. It's two euros per liter, which in Canadian dollar terms is $3 a liter. So, you know, I was just thinking like, what would my little, you know, Nissan Versa hatchback, like, would I be paying like 100 Canadian just to drive it around for a week? Like, it's, it's off the charts. And so we're back to this energy being stubbornly high. So policymakers must be at their wit's end as everything they're doing is not working. And now China is opening. So anyway, so we have some very interesting stories coming up. We also have Miles Rideout from Argentina Lithium coming up for the CEO Spotlight, which is also very interesting. And what's going on in Argentina is part of the Grosso group there. And finally... Coming up tomorrow, Wednesday, June 8th, 2022, at 10.30 a.m., One King West Hotel, Toronto, Ontario, Pierre Lassonde and Ashley Kerwin for the next Mining Legend Speaker Series brought to you by the Northern Miner Symposiums, Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, and Young Mining Professionals. You can still get tickets, but they are running low. There are 20 available. At $85, just go to events.northernminer.com, includes a gourmet three-course lunch. I can't think of a better networking opportunity. If you're in the natural resources industry, 
and it comes with a great lunch. And you know what? It's kind of like the perfect amount of time. It starts at 1030 and it ends at one. It's beautiful. So Mining Legends Speaker Series, only 100 tickets are available from the Northern Miner and 80 are gone. And I imagine that will sell out. So check it out, events.northernminer.com. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can visit northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. Wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to Miles Rideout, VP of Exploration at Argentina Lithium. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Miles Rideout, Vice President of Exploration for Argentina Lithium, who is an exploration geophysicist by training. Miles, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we're very pleased to have you today, Miles. You know, lithium, it's something we don't talk enough about on this program, actually, but lithium has just been one of those sensational metals of the last couple of years. I mean, you look at the chart and it is off the charts. So tell us, you're with Argentina Lithium. I guess you have projects in Argentina. What are you working on? Well, we do. First of all, I agree with the lithium space. We, we are an exploration company exploring and, and hopefully developing lithium resources because we're exploration stage, we're kind of looking at where lithium production might be at the, the end of this decade, say, and, and uh, we expect it to boom. I mean, we have you know, green energy projects, but we don't have you know, on-grid storage. Uh, electric vehicles are still in the um, early stages of development. So I think that our industry will have strong growth. Our mission is to provide growth for our investors in this market. So starting from early stage projects and then bringing them through to partnering and production stage projects, say in the next five to seven years. What we have, I guess for the last year, we've been focused on property acquisitions. We're focused in Northwest Argentina and we're looking at lithium brine projects on Solars. We have four projects. The two flagship projects would be Rincon West and Antifia North. And I'll just describe them briefly. Rincon Solar has a, a large published resource. It was developed not by us, uh, but by Rincon Mining. And that property sold to Rio Tinto Mining uh, just a few months ago for more than $880 million. We have an adjacent property on the west flank of that resource. We've completed our geophysics and we've begun drilling that property last week. So we will be producing uh, results from that property over the coming four or five months. I have five holes planned to go into that property. And so we're speaking right now, uh, right at the end of May, we'll be producing results on sort of a monthly basis for the next four months, I expect. The other area is the Antifia North property. Antifia is, uh, it's about 140, 150 kilometers to the south of Rincon. Antifia is a very large solar. It's about 130 kilometers long and about 7 to 10 kilometers across. The central part of Antifia has been claimed and is being developed by Albermal, the world's largest lithium producer. We have the northern block of the Solar. So our property block starts about 500 meters north of Albermal, and it extends for 26 kilometers to the north. The area is undrilled. We have limited geophysics on the property already, which shows that we have what looks to me like stratified brine resources going down to 
500 meters depth from surface to 500 meters depth. So uh, we've consolidated that property position over the last year. We're in our permitting stage now, and I expect to be completing the geophysics on that ground in the second half of this year and drilling those properties from January of next year. Okay, so it sounds like you guys got a lot going on here. So to simplify things for our listeners, just to boil it down, so you have a few projects in Argentina here, and you are at different stages in those projects. And so I guess you're doing the drilling. I guess, how do you see things kind of rolling out in the next couple of years? And are you guys eventually hoping to do a JV or to be taken out or to make a mine? Like, in a sense, where from here? Sure. So our track record, our company is managed by the Grosso Group. So we've had a focus in Argentina over the last 25 years, and our group made four world-class discoveries, but typically in the metals space, metals, metallic minerals, let's say. So we have a track record for discovery and then bringing discovered resources into partnering and into mine production. Two of those projects are, are producing mines today. And and we're partnered on those. So I think what we're doing here is we're exploration stage right now. So we're picking up properties which appeal to me. What I like to see is good access, good infrastructure. I like, if possible, there to be a high value, high grade resource on the base and where we're working. I think that increases our potential for having a really good discovery. And then we will leverage our, our strengths. So that would be advanced geophysical imaging and then uh, our, our drilling and our financing experience and partnering in Argentina. And so I, what we expect to do is discover resources, publish resources, and then we'll look for partnering opportunities. What we see in the lithium space right now is there's a lot of interest with large companies looking to get involved with lithium. And these are not necessarily just the battery manufacturers or the automotive manufacturers. There are petroleum groups interested in getting into the lithium space and sort of applying their area of expertise. So we'll be looking at these kinds of opportunities as we go forward. And uh, so our steps would be discover high-grade lithium on the properties with this initial pass of, of drilling. This is diamond drilling, so we'll be doing brine samples and and core samples. A next step would be to fully develop that resource, to fully drill it out and perhaps do evaluation testing with technologies that might be applicable for extraction and looking for partnering opportunities. So I think that these two lead projects, they're extremely prospective. I hope that we'll get economic results from both these initial projects and, and we can bring them into a resource stage and then partnering stage within a resource stage within a year or so and partnering within two to three years and hopefully we'll be in production on both of them by the end of this decade amazing so that all sounds pretty promising so as far as the takeaway for investors then if i was to kind of you know if i'd summarize but if i was to summarize the takeaway for you it would be you guys have four projects in argentina two are highly prospective and on their way. And these other two are basically in the pipeline in an extremely hot area. In other words, hot meaning there's not enough lithium from what I can, what I read. So that basically we have some very promising potential and blue sky potential, as they'd say. Is that a fair summary or am I missing something? That is exactly our case. The two projects that I didn't mention, their exploration stage on two different solar basins both those basins have, have lithium values, but 
those two basins, economic grade lithium has not been drilled previously. And so we've taken very large property positions there. It doesn't cost us very much. We'll be doing advanced exploration uh, development on those properties to identify targets consistent with uh, concentrated lithium brine aquifers and we'll drill. So to my mind, this is low cost and ambitious exploration. If we can get a a third or fourth discovery on those basins, well, they they, they tick all the other boxes. They have good access, uh, logistical support, and we've gone for scale. So uh, if we find a significant discovery in those areas, we can scale it up to a large project. So anyway, that's that's basically the nutshell. We have two projects which are highly prospective, and then two projects which have great property positions. Lithium brines have been drilled, but they're sort of a greenfields exploration stage project. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Miles. And just as we close here, tell us a little bit about working in Argentina. How do you guys feel? You feel like uh, it's you know business friendly? Is are there any problems? How, tell us about Argentina a little bit. Well, Argentina has an economic history, which is interesting. I've I've lived here for 25 years, and and I've lived in South America for about uh, 35, uh, 33 years. So Argentina has ups and downs, but what this means is there's opportunities. So it, it's not intensely developed and invested in as Chile, but uh, you know the lithium brine projects are going ahead. Money is coming into these projects. I mean, we're we're on track to become a a leading lithium producer in the world. The government is is very much in favor of lithium production and development. Where we're working, it's um, it's the, the highland area of or the high plain area of of Argentina, and it's kind of a depressed region which is looking for economic development. And so we're seeing changes in in the regional development exactly tied to how um, the lithium projects are are being developed. And there's a there's a big groundswell of public support for these projects because the region needs the economics. So um, I, I think from that perspective, uh, Argentina represents an excellent opportunity, particularly in the lithium space. Okay, excellent. And so this is Miles Rideout, Vice President of Exploration for Argentina Lithium. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. It's been my pleasure. And we'd like to thank Argentina Lithium and the Grosso Group for sponsoring this week's episode. If you want to learn more about Argentina Lithium, just visit them at argentinalithium.com. And turning to the website, we have follow-up from that LME nickel story that kind of took the world by storm there after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where they had to halt nickel trading. So let's take a closer look. This is Reuters via mining.com, hedge fund Elliott sues LME for $456 million over nickel trading halt. U.S. hedge fund Elliott Associates is suing the London Metal Exchange, LME, for $456 million for cancelling nickel trades after chaotic trading in March that forced the exchange to suspend its nickel market, the LME said on Monday. The legal action piles more pressure on the exchange, which is being probed by regulators and is struggling to restore trust and volumes in its nickel market. You know, you wonder if this is just like a precursor. Could this happen to other metals? All the gold bugs out there must just be thinking like, see, they don't have the supply. They had to shut it down. You know, you wonder if this is just like the the appetizer. You know, my inner gold bug is wondering, is this just the appetizer? Elliot said... The LME should not have halted trading and erased deals after prices more than doubled to over $100,000 a ton in a matter of hours on March 8th. 
The LME and LME Clear Limited were named as defendants in the judicial review claim filed in a British court by Elliott Associates and Elliott International last week, the LME's parent company Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing said. An Elliott spokesperson said in an email that the LME had acted, quote, unreasonably and irrationally, in particular, by taking into account irrelevant factors, including its own financial position, end quote. Well, you'd imagine it's in the terms and condition that uh, we can do whatever we want if you trade on our exchange. If they don't, okay, so continuing on. The LME, the world's largest and oldest market for industrial metals, said it had to take action to protect the market as a whole when trading became disorderly. In a statement, the exchange said it had, quote, an important role to play in ensuring the market is fair and orderly for all those who wish to participate, end quote. It added that the nickel market had become disorderly and that it had canceled deals from midnight to 8.15 GMT on March 8th in an attempt to return the market to the time when it had last been orderly. Sounds like a qualitative judgment, disorderly and orderly. Probably conveniently, the LME therefore considered that Elliott's grounds for complaint are without merit, and the LME will defend any judicial review proceedings vigorously. Well, sounds like trouble. There is more in that story. You can read it on mining.com. Continuing on, another related story, B of A, Bank of America, identifies the prime causes of violent metal short squeezes by Henry Lazenby. So it looks like they did some analysis on what's going on in the nickel market as well. New analysis published by Bank of America Global Research has found on-warrant metal inventories and net non-commercial positions as the leading metrics that could signal the risk of violent short squeezes on above-ground metal supplies. So we are back to this paper versus real metal issue. The bank's global research team undertook correlation and principal component analyses to determine which market metrics would have signaled the next metal squeeze, not unlike the, quote, violent, end quote, nickel squeeze currently underway. These drivers stand beside the, quote, idiosyncratic drivers, end quote, of metal price volatility over the past two years, the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's war on Ukraine. BMA analysts concluded that the risk of violent squeezes increases when stocks are low, at the same time as non-commercial market participants are very long. Analysts are concerned with the current market setup and see a risk that short squeezes will become more frequent, well, especially when it looks like one of the few trades that's been performing well. You know, you must wonder, like, how many of these GameStop people are in commodities right now? How many of the crypto people are in commodities right now? Interesting question. Quote, tackling inventories first. Stocks have fallen steadily in recent years, and keeping in mind a lack of supply growth going forward, there's a high probability that these will not be replenished anytime soon, commodity strategist Michael Widmer said in a June 2nd report. Quote, with the LME a market of last resort, this may well imply that on-warrant stocks will become critically low for many metals. On-warrant stocks. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Anybody knows, feel free to leave a comment. Meanwhile, focusing on copper, the LME Commitment of Traders report highlights that non-commercial market participants have gained market share relative to commercial traders. Non-commercial market participants have gained market share relative to commercial traders. This is important, according to B of A, given that a structurally bullish setup for many metal markets over the energy transition may well mean that any shorts could at stages find it challenging to source the offsetting long to close a position. However, in the case of aluminum, B of A noted inventories had had a, quote, remarkable round trip in the past decade. 
Rising to record levels in the wake of the great financial crisis on the back of meaningful oversupplies, stocks have fallen steadily of late, and on-warrant inventories now stand at only 192,000 tons. Quote, indeed, on the current trajectory, LME warehouses will run out of metal by October. This is stunning considering concerns that there would not be sufficient warehouse space a bit over a decade ago, said Widmer. So they expect to run out on the current trajectory by October, run out of aluminum. And nickel's no small commodity either. I mean, these are central industrial metals here. Granted, China's producers are restarting smelters that had been idled last year. And demand is also weak. But then again, European smelters are shutting down and economic activity in China may accelerate as lockdowns ease. Quote, the latter point also matters when keeping in mind that nearby aluminum prices have historically been closely correlated with China's GDP growth rate. As such, an aluminum squeeze may well be in the making, end quote, cautioned Widmer. So you can see the charts at northernminer.com. They're worried about an aluminum squeeze. I mean, this is pretty crazy stuff. Another mining.com article, iron ore prices sees biggest weekly gain since March on China demand optimism. And it says the iron ore price topped up its biggest weekly gain in 13 weeks as traders track China's moves to rein in COVID-19 restrictions that have weighed on steel demand this quarter. Beijing authorities said the capital will resume public transport in most districts, restart dine-in restaurant services, and allow workers to return to offices. This comes after the city achieved zero new community cases in most of its 16 districts. There's a real battle here between nature and culture with this COVID-19 thing. Like, can they actually stamp out COVID temporarily or even longer by these lockdowns? I mean, it still seems like a huge, like all you need is one case. You know, anyway, the steel-making ingredient, in other words, iron ore, shot through $140 a ton last week after spending most of May fluctuating around $130 a ton. Iron ore inventories at major ports plunged to their lowest levels for the year, reaching an eight-month low, according to Steel Home Data. I had a dream in Spain that the world was running out of metals, and it just feels like one of those ominous dreams. And then here we are reading iron ore, aluminum nickel. Like again, these are not like the fringe metals here. And the fringe metals are also very important and we're running into issues there. And steelmaking margins are expanding again after shrinking to a 15-month low in May. So you can read all about it, mining.com. Another sign of the time, Toronto Exchange to launch Battery Metals Index. And this is by Cecilia Jamasmi. Canada's Toronto Stock Exchange will launch on Tuesday a Battery Metals Index to support the critical mineral sector and offer insights into the energy transition. The S&P TSX Battery Metals Index will track Canadian-listed companies engaged in the production and exploration of metals used in the making of batteries that power electric cars or are used in renewable energy, including copper, nickel, cobalt, and lithium. Global demand for battery metals continues to gain momentum, and the goal of this new benchmark is to provide investors increased exposure to and deeper insights into the clean tech and energy transition story. Louis Anastopoulos, chief executive of the Toronto Stock Exchange, said in a statement, The new benchmark's top five constituents include Turquoise Hill Resources, Tech Resources, Sierra Metals, First Quantum Minerals, and Lundane Mining. Other heavyweights to be tracked are Eero Copper, Hud Bay Minerals, China Gold International, Copper Mountain Mining, and Tezico Mines. So an interesting group. I guess you're pretty happy if you got into the index. That's probably good for you.
And continuing on, just a few headlines here. Ecuador is positioning itself as South America's most promising mining frontier. This is by Tom Azopardi, one of our great freelancers. Since taking office a year ago, President Guillermo Lasso has placed his chips firmly on mining to bring the investment and jobs needed to revitalize Ecuador's economy. Under an action plan launched in August 2021, the government set out a wide-ranging to-do list to get the sector moving from speeding up permitting and reopening the claim system to convincing a sometimes skeptical public of the benefits mining can bring. The government's aim is to push five priority projects, Attico Mining's La Plata, Dundee Precious Metals' Loma Larga, Adventist Mining's Domo, Lumina Gold's Cangrejo, and Sol Gold's Cascabel into construction by the time it stands down in 2025. Now, I'm not going to read anymore. I just want to whet your appetite on that one. There is the full story in this week's Northern Miner. It's also on the website, but we also have the Mega PDAC issue, which is going live this week, and it'll also be available at PDAC in print form. Look for it. Those are your stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. So as we mentioned, the 10-year bond is at 3.031%, so above 3% again, more cause for concern. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Looking at our precious metals, gold is trading at $1,848.31 per ounce. It's $7 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.02 per ounce. That is three cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,009.71 per ounce. That is $48 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,014.20 per ounce. That is $24 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading $0.03 cents higher at $4.29 per pound. Aluminum is trading $0.05 cents lower at $1.23 per pound. Lead is trading $0.02 cents higher at $0.97 cents per pound. And nickel is trading $0.06 cents lower at $12.57 per pound. Tin is trading $0.55 cents higher at $15.99 per pound. And cobalt is trading at $33.28 per pound. That is 47 cents lower than last week. And zinc is trading four cents higher at $1.77 per pound. What do we see? I just see a big consolidation here. It's a mishmash. Everything's either up or down 1% or 1 or 2% here. Like it's a status quo week, interestingly, in the metals markets. But we are seeing continued sustained high prices at these ever more higher prices. So again, a status quo week in metals. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Alicia Hyatt's interview with Premier of the Government of Yukon, Sandy Silver. And it's a very interesting interview. Again, the, the whole Arctic security issue definitely came out of nowhere for me. It sounds like they are very well positioned to do well, and they're, they're higher on the Fraser Institute surveys. They have broken the top 10, so it's exciting times in Yukon. Alicia did a fabulous job interviewing Premier Silver, who was done in the Q2 Global Mining Symposium, 
which is hosted quarterly, and you can attend, and we will keep you updated on the next one. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. of the Northern Miner, and I'm here today with Yukon Premier Sandy Silver. Premier Silver, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Let's start with the obvious. The Yukon has incredible mineral wealth, but not many operating mines at the moment. At the same time, we have burgeoning demand for critical minerals coming up. So where do you see the Yukon fitting into this picture? It's a really good question. Uh, I mean, our whole history is based upon uh, mining since the gold rush in my riding of uh, Dawson City and the Klondike. And through the years, uh, the efforts of prospectors and, uh, and explorers, we've identified in Yukon 2,900 different mineral occurrences. So whether it's uh, from the current mines, we're mining gold, we're mining uh, copper and, and, uh, and silver right now, but the potential with the critical minerals is, uh, is amazing. Uh, it, the Yukon is very well endowed in a lot of different areas. And as the federal government uh, is moving to invest in critical mineral strategy as well, first in Canada history for a federal government, Yukon is really poised to uh, not only... Um, you know, learning from uh, past practices, but moving forward into this new direction, uh, I can't see another jurisdiction better suited, uh, especially when you take a look at our relationships with First Nations governments. We've always believed that uh, the environment and the economy have to be mentioned in the same conversation together. And by having First Nations governments at that table as well, it really does ensure that uh, seven generations of, uh, of Yukon and families are being considered in everything that we do. So whether it's just our mineral wealth or our strong government-to-government relations, we are absolutely poised to, uh, to seize the opportunity to move forward into a, a new era of mining. Speaking of the budget, the budget included a big investment for the first time in critical minerals, including mining and exploration. As a premier of, of a northern jurisdiction that has some challenges with infrastructure and costs, I was just wondering how you received that budget and whether there was anything in particular that excited you about it. Well, I think that's what I think it's $3.9 billion uh, that the federal government is putting aside for the implementation of Canada's first critical minerals strategy. We're very keen to work with Canada uh, to ensure that we are well suited to move forward in that direction. We believe we'll play a very significant role. Uh, in uh, in the search for a source for critical minerals you know, that is needed for everyone to transition into a, a more green economy. We've had other partnerships with the federal government, uh, roads to resources, a half a billion dollars there to uh, provide the infrastructure necessary to get into into mining areas. I mean, you could take a look uh, at the uh, just at the history of Yukon. A lot of our infrastructure was built in the pursuit of mining. So as the federal government turns a page and starts looking towards uh, investing in the materials needed for uh, uh, electricity of, electri of vehicles and houses, those minerals to come from a supply chain inside of Canada. I know Ontario's been doing some great things in uh, battery technology as well. Uh, to close that loop to a Canadian-made uh, component with those minerals, I think it's extremely important, especially in an area like Yukon that has such a good geopolitical uh, consideration. Was there anything missing in the budget that you would have liked to have seen? 
Well, I think that, you know, with the international conflict that's happening right now in Ukraine, the mention of, uh, of Arctic security is on everybody's mind. We spoke with several different ministers, including Minister Anand uh, and uh, the, the Deputy Prime Minister as well, talking about how maybe there wasn't anything specific in the budget on uh, Arctic security, but that other foot shall drop at, uh, it was too, too quick before the considerations for the budget uh, to have those specifics on those different line items. As the Minister of Finance as well, I can understand that. He goes through a lot of variance reports and as you develop a budget. So I believe there's a commitment to uh, Arctic security and uh, you know, a federal government has a responsibility for the military side of that. Whereas the territorial governments uh, and the First Nations governments working in partnership for making sure that we have resilient communities. You know, uh, you know, every Canadian should have the equal access to health care. Uh, every uh, Canadian should have the equal access to education. So having a strong Arctic community, whether we're looking at climate change uh, and all of the different Northwest passages that are opening up in the North, or if we're looking at international conflict and looking at security, the best thing that the Canadian government can do to help us is to fund resilient, strong uh, First Nations and Northern communities. So the Yukon moved into the top 10 of the Fraser Institute's Mining Jurisdiction Survey this year. It now ranks ninth globally. Uh, moving from the number 18 spot last year, and number three in Canada for investment. So how do you plan on staying in the top 10? Great to see the Fraser Institute recognize uh, the work that we've been doing over the long term uh, of working with Indigenous uh, governments and also working on a process uh, to review our uh, economic, uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, status boards, uh, YESIP. Uh, the process uh, to ensure that the system can adjust well. So we're, we're, we're happy to see that the respondents indicated that they've seen a decrease in concerns in Yukon's environmental regulations and the socio-economic uh, concerns, and also a, an, an increase in certainty uh, when it comes to working together uh, on the geopolitical side of things. But we know that we still have a lot more to do. Uh, so there is a yes up reset. So there's a new table uh, with the board uh, for uh, for these pursuits and just making sure that we can continue to adjust to society's needs as we move into the next uh, phase of mining, including critical minerals, uh, lining up with the, uh, the intent of the federal government uh, and also making sure that we can streamline the system as well as possible. I will say as well that the best thing that uh, what I've seen in my, uh, you know, 11 years in politics now, you know, working hand in glove with First Nations governments, you know, coming to them first. Uh, and then coming to us, uh, it really does help in that process. You know, uh, when public comment comes in to see a company that uh, a company like Victoria Gold, you know, a company like uh, uh, Minto or Alexco, just being good corporate citizens really goes a long way uh, in the regulatory system as well. You know, um, what we have in Yukon is a lot of the um, a lot of the mining. Uh, jobs, whether they're the contracts or subcontracts, uh, exploration, uh, prospectors, uh, all the way through to production. A lot of Yukon uh, content, uh, a lot of in Indigenous content as well, which really, really bodes well uh, for the Fraser Institute recognizing the uh, the work that we've done. But also now, if, as we continue to move forward, uh, we need to keep the yes at reset moving forward, uh, working with all of our partners to ensure that uh, we keep in the uh, in the in the good uh, good side of the top ten. Can you tell me a little bit more about that reset of Yesov? Uh, and as you know, there have been uh, concerns uh, of that I'm sure you're trying to address about uh, about the timelines and um, 
missing uh, legislated timelines. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the uh, the YESA Oversight Group is one of the uh, systems that's tasked with this work. Um, it's, uh, it's a joint effort between the Government of Canada, uh, the Government of Yukon, and also First Nations uh, governments as well, all working together to try to find efficiencies uh, and to improve the YESA uh, process. And in part of that mandate, uh, the Oversight Group is considering changes uh, to the uh, Environmental Socioeconomic Assessment Act, and maybe it's some of its regulations as well, in, in an effort to reduce some unnecessary assessments, mm -hmm. things that are, are are redos, you know, that haven't changed much, uh, you know, being able to uh, to move quicker through uh, through a system that would allow. Um, you know, a company to, if they've already gone through an environmental process years ago and nothing has changed, then we don't have to start from ground zero again, mm -hmm. those types of things. So work is advancing with this group right now, and uh, we hope to see additional progress in the near future too. Your government has started a process to modernize the Mining Act in the Yukon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Hand in glove, absolutely. For those who know legislation in the north, you know, we did uh, paralleled uh, you know, uh, legislation at the times of devolution and the plan is always to get to successor legislation, whether it be in land, uh, forestry uh, or mining. Uh, and so we're, we've been working uh, in the last uh, year uh, with Indigenous governments and federal government as well on the uh, on, the, on this process, it's modernizing, right? I mean, it's uh, taking a look at placer and quartz mining and seeing if there's double standards inside of there or how we can work through efficiencies, taking a look at what we've done and, and making sure that the mining uh, companies and uh, the prospectors and, and the folks in Yukon that have dedicated their lives to this industry are part of that modernized uh, uh, process as well. So it's really good to have that. Uh, it was a commitment that uh, the territory made to the federal government years ago, and so we're honoring that commitment. And can you tell us a little bit more about First Nations involvement in that process? Well, so in uh, in Yukon, we have uh, 14 First Nations. Eleven of them uh, are have modern uh, self-governing agreements, and uh, and three still uh, manage their affairs through the Indian Act. We have government-to-government uh, -government relations with each of these nations, and we work collaboratively in an overlap of a lot of different areas. We just changed our procurement models uh, so that we have a First Nations procurement model. We're changing education. We now have uh, education boards that are uh, driven by First Nations communities. And also, uh, we signed an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding with First Nations governments uh, in our first year of government. All extremely important conversations, which all kind of coalesce together at a, a body called the, uh, the, the Yukon Forum. So this is a legislative meeting four times a year with the chiefs, all of my ministers, it's in-camera conversations. We have very tough conversations, everything from uh, you know child and family services, uh, for example, all the way through to mining. This year alone, we uh, we we changed the Family and uh, Child and Family Services Act, first time in Yukon history where uh, a, a, a territorial legislation was co-developed uh, with First Nations. Uh, and the territorial government. And so we'll see more of this happening. In every community, the governments who can do the work most efficiently, those should be the ones uh, that, that do the work and we all can work together and partner. And, and, uh, and it's very exciting times in the Yukon right now. These uh, First Nations are very sophisticated and the Yukon Forum has 16 different working groups, a, uh, a, an executive committee uh, that, that kind of coordinates everything together. And uh, you know, it's a lot of difficult uh, work and uh, it's great to have have uh, these First Nations uh, helping out, uh, lifting, uh, lifting the weight of even going through years of COVID. I shudder to think what Yukon would have 
what UConn's experience would have been through COVID if we didn't have those rapports and relationships already developed with the First Nations communities. We all stepped up right away um, and it was very, very good to see. So when you take a look at, uh, you know, self-governing First Nations uh, as they draw down on their self-governing agreements, this is really important work. You know, we're, we're trying to develop more of an equity stake in, uh, in everything we do because that's the important piece of living uh, on the land, on the traditional territories of the First Nations who, who share this land with us. In terms of benefits from mining and um, authority over their own traditional territory, can you tell us a bit about what you would expect the outcome of all of these updates and regulatory processes and, and legislation to be? In the end, yeah, it's it's hard to me talk about the finalization. We're in the consultation phase right now with mining uh, and also with the First Nations governments. But uh, you know, some of this legislation hasn't changed since the gold rush. So making sure that we modernize is a really good opportunity to take a look at historic trends and new opportunities. Um, so whether it be uh, a federal government that's moving towards critical minerals, or taking a look at uh, legacy mining and how we can look at best practices based upon you know some mistakes that have made been made in the past. All of this goes forward with the uh, the creation of new mining legislation or successor legislation uh, in the in the Yukon. So it's a process. You know, we uh, we spent a, about a year speaking at the Yukon Forum with the First Nations without mining at the table. You know, really coming together and and deciding uh, you know how we want to move forward together. And in that time, from our first year to now our fifth year, we've seen three mines come up and running in in Yukon, and uh, we have another mine. Uh, you know, the, with Newmont. Uh, you know, going through the process. Process right now as well. So uh, Alexco reopening in uh, in the Kino district. Uh, amazing to see that amazing company back up and running. The Minto mining at, uh, at Minto uh, again, uh, excellent. And Minto is a really interesting mine. It's uh, on settlement land for the Selkirk First Nation. Uh, so direct benefits to, to that First Nation. And then you know watching uh, John McConnell and the team at uh, Victoria Gold open the Eagle Project, uh, the largest gold mine in Yukon history. Uh, all uh, under the same time of uh, us working with First Nations to develop an MOU of understand, a memorandum of understanding, uh, and to really start uh, seeding the, the the kind of the groundwork for the changes to, to mining legislation. So it's exciting times. We're now in that process. The mining community was very uh, gracious in that time where we were speaking with the First Nations governments. Now, you know, we've been working with them to engage and to see how, uh, from a mining perspective as well, how we can get rid of duplication, how we can, uh, you know, take a look at the, some of the parallels and some of the, uh, you know, historic changes to the, uh, the Placer versus the Quartz Mining Act, and really now spend some time together uh, modernizing uh, and applying it again to, uh, what, to what the federal government is doing with the critical mineral strategy. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the progress your government has made in bringing new infrastructure into mineral-rich areas of the territory? Yeah, we started out by making sure that we had a five-year capital plan. That was never there before in the Yukon. So to, to show folks uh, where we're going with uh, taxpayers' money as far as investing, whether it is in tourism or sovereignty uh, or in mining, uh, it was really important to show what we're doing each year. From the first year to our last year, the amount of capital projects that are being worked on in Yukon has uh, has gone through the roof, you know, and uh, our ability to uh, to to 
in our main budget say we're going to build this much and then take a look at the public accounts a year and a half later. Yeah, we've been doing a very good job of committing to and actually, even through the pandemic, uh, getting these projects done. And I hold my hands up to the construction companies in, in Yukon, but also the mining uh, folks as well. Uh, during COVID, uh, we had the best GDP in Canada, and it's in no small part because of uh, miners looking after miners, you know, getting folks back to camp during, you know, you remember that time of uh, in 2020 where folks really didn't know uh, what this pandemic was or where it was leading. You know, we really saw the uh, the communities uh, pull together. And so that was great. So when it comes to the actual infrastructure, I mentioned before roads to resources, you know, almost half a billion dollars in investment to roads uh, to access uh, this abundance. We had expansion of Northern Klondike uh, Highway as well, so that our roads uh, are at the same standard all the way up uh, through to Dawson City, very rich mining area, which allows trucks to get on the roads earlier in the year. We're uh, announcing major investments in, in bridge uh, replacement. And one of the things too, uh, when you're looking at capital assets in the, in the Yukon, you can't just replace, you have to invest in climate change. You have to make sure that the new way that you build, whether it's retrofits to homes and, and businesses or government buildings or even highway technologies uh, or bridge technologies, you know, you're not just replacing, you're making things better. And, you know, we've been very, very uh, lucky to have a good economy uh, to be able to fund. And also uh, with the federal government, we have a really good uh, agreement. Uh, a lot of federal money, like the uh, mining resource roads that I talked about, for example, are a 25-75 split where our government pays 25% and the territorial government, or federal government pays 75%. So it's been really busy, uh, even during COVID as well. Uh, our GDP is, is humming along and uh, the, uh, the forecasts of our GDP are going through the roof as well uh, as we build uh, and get ready for exciting new projects like Newmont uh, as well, which again, I'm very biased of because it's in my riding of Klondike. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Premier Silver. Absolutely, thank you for having me, it was a pleasure. Another fabulous interview by Alicia Hyatt. Again, thank you to Argentina Lithium and the Grosso Group for sponsoring this week's episode. And lest you forget, tomorrow is Pierre Lasson and Ashley Kerwin in Toronto. So lots going on. Just go to events.northernminer.com and you might be able to get one of those remaining 20 tickets. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.